Kreusser, welcome to Recovery Now Radio, which is brought to you in conjunction with Adveriad Recovery and Living Room Cardiff. Adveriad Recovery is a registered charity offering specialist support to those with co-occurring substance misuse and mental health conditions. Living Room Cardiff provides ongoing support and aftercare as a community-based recovery centre that has an all-addictions approach, including gambling, alcohol, drugs, both prescribed and illicit, sex, eating disorders, gaming, etc., or any other harmful behaviour. We welcome anyone who needs confidential support in taking those first important steps towards change and recovery. Family members and friends are also catered for. For further details, please see the Adveriad Recovery website, www.adveriad.org.uk and www.livingroom-cardiff.com. Diochen Thank you so much. You can get it if you really want You can get it if you really want You can get it if you really want But you must try, try and try, try and try You'll succeed at last Welcome to Recovery Now Radio Let's recover together Persecution, you must be Recovery Now Radio, coming to you from the living room and at Berryard. You're listening to Recovery Now Radio. Let's recover together. My name is Joe, and our guest today is Lisa. How are you, Lisa? Very well, Joe. How are you today? I'm very well as well, apart from this miserable weather that we're having. Oh, it's horrific. It is horrific. Lisa has come in today to talk to us about her alcohol addiction and a little bit about her ADHD. But before we jump into that, I'm going to play your first song, Lisa, which is Carry On Wayward Son by Kansas. Can you tell me why you chose that song? I was a really kind of emotional little child, you know, quite a bright little child. And I have memories of sitting in my mother's, the back of my mother's station wagon, listening to this and feeling like there was information that would help me within this song. It was very reassuring.
This is Recovery Now Radio, Let's Recover Together. And that was Carry On Wayward Son by Kansas. Lisa's still with us today, all the way from New Jersey in the USA. My first question to you, Lisa, is could you tell me a little bit about what growing up was like for you? I think growing up for me was was challenging. It was difficult on one level. There was always something different about me. You know, I was a very bright child but there was something different about me and I didn't know what it was and I couldn't put my finger on it and I wouldn't find out for many years. And it would take me many years after that to accept what the answer truly was. But I had to look to learn how to behave. I didn't realize it, but I did have a degree of social delay, you know, (laughs) I just didn't get the rules. And I think reading turned out to be my first addiction. I learned to read at a very young age and just turned to it to get away and to live, you know, for a long, long time. So there's definitely a form of escapism there immediately, isn't there? Very much so. Yourself in a book. Oh, very much so. And I did probably, I mean, I read incessantly. I didn't go anywhere without at least two books in case I finished the first one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, You mentioned in your brief, you have ADHD. Could you explain that a little bit to us? Yeah. um, I didn't get diagnosed until I was 23. I was extremely fortunate to um, go to a very brilliant diagnostician of a psychiatrist who recognized that was what was wrong with me. I didn't accept it because at that time I really felt that like ADHD was something that was a made up thing to excuse bad behavior. Um, And I, I felt that I didn't deserve that. But, you know, after many, many years, I came to accept that that is what it is. And once I did that, I began to learn how to be able to cope with it. Um, But as a child, it was difficult because I wanted desperately to please. I was not that child who was running around the room screaming. I was the child who just, you know, was on another planet. But I was so bright that I really compensated for a lot of the shortcomings that I had. I mean, what do you do with a four-year-old who can read and write? You send them to school. You know, I wasn't ready. But what else do you do with them? So did you find that um, being intellectual at such a young age, did you get bored a lot? Well, yeah. And I mean, like I was well known for being the only discipline, the best behaved discipline problem at school because (laughs) I got in trouble constantly for reading my own material instead of doing what was asked of me. Now, luckily that only happened in math class because that was the only class I truly found boring, but. I, from a young age, have always struggled to like follow the rules. Um, I've always had a very strong, independent mind. And I do believe that when I say I was different, I do believe that I was different in the sense that I feel that my peers did sense an otherness about me. And it, when we moved and I changed schools at nine, that became the breeding ground for bullying. And that really took its toll until I kind of brought that to an end when I was 14. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Your second song is One of My Turns by Pink Floyd. What inspires you with this one? 
when one of the problems that you have is that you just completely can flip because of emotional dysregulation. It's a frightening thing. This song documents what that's like, but it also documents the horror that the person who's experiencing it feels. Yeah. And that's why I chose it. You're listening to Recovery Now Radio, Let's Recover Together. And that was one of my turns by Pink Floyd. Lisa, what memories did that bring up for you? The one thing that it really brings up in me is something that um, that I have within me is this, you know, this temper, this anger. If I'm pushed and I'm dysregulated and I lose it, I'm afraid. You know, I left an abusive relationship, not because I was being abused, but because in the heat of an argument one day, I realized one of us is going to end up dead and it's going to be him. And when you know that you have that capacity inside of you, and I'm, I don't say that for drama, that's, that was fact. You know, I saw it as clearly as I see, you know, the sky outside my door. I just had to leave. Um, yeah. And that's really, you know, that in the middle of the song, he just cries out, no. And that's where, you know, you're, you're, you can't stop it, but you're screaming out for it to come to an end because being out of control is frightening and we were talking a little bit about you experiencing bullying when when you were a child can you tell us a little more about that and how that presented itself and how it ended when we moved and I changed schools I was again different you know and that was all right but there were girls in the year ahead of me that as I got older I I still don't understand why it began 
because I was quiet. I was except I was bright, you know, very bright, but I was quiet. It was abuse on the school bus because I had a 20 minute drive there and back. You know, it was my locker being vandalized, things being thrown at my house, phone calls, you know, it escalated to the point where I had to fight. When I started to fight, then the bullying, you know, really kind of came to an end because I think women in particular don't really want to physically fight, but I had to, I had no choice. You know, I'm not going to be a doormat and I'm not an aggressive person verbally. I, I really just don't behave that way. So it was kind of the only alternative I had, but it left scars that I'm still dealing with to this day. It's hard to underestimate the effect that it has on yourself. You almost feel stained through the yeah. experience. And that took a long time to shift. And I guess, um, well, alcohol became a part of that solution, didn't it? Well, I don't think that there's any coincidence that my first drink when I was 14 happened because the only kids that would kind of hang out with me were the kids that were, you know, different alternative drinkers, the dope smokers, you know, and they were accepting of even a crazy person like me because I thought I was labeled crazy, mm. you know, and I very quickly, you know, had my first drink and I drank to the point of just vomiting and it felt great. It felt like the first time that I could be like what other people seemed like. And when I went home, my dad must've known I was hungover and we talked about alcohol. We talked about the alcoholism that's within my family and his own struggles with alcohol. Although he didn't drink for, uh, for a very long portion of my life and never drank alcoholically in front of me. And that led me to give up alcohol and not drink again for quite a few years because it frightened me. Now, my story includes other substances. I was a recreational marijuana smoker as a kid, but um, alcohol was, alcohol's the one always, you know, yeah. I, and I came back to it when I was 20 as a result of that, a relationship that was very dysfunctional. I want to explore this quite a bit with you, if that's okay. But before yeah, we ahead. do that, we're going to listen to Forward to Death by the Dead Kennedys. Why this song? The lyrics of this song really summed up how I felt about a lot of the world in my teenage years. It just seemed so full of hate and negativity. It was it was terrifying to me. I didn't want to be here. And I, I've had an ambivalence about that for a lot of my life. And this song kind of reflects that. Excellent. Let's have a listen. recovery now radio let's recover together lisa i'm sensing a bit of anger in that tune <laughs> oh yeah it was were you angry when you were younger i've always had everything very large so mm. yes i've been angry you know i can remember times i say i was quiet but i can remember times from my childhood standing up and lecturing you know 30 kids because somebody drew swastikas on somebody else's book and nobody knew what that meant except me and I stood up oh. and told him what it meant and you know yes. you can I was 10 you know wow. I think I was just an odd child you know looking back <laughs> and an emotional one with values though yeah <laughs> Moving on a little bit more to your alcoholism, can you tell us when that started to really have a life of its own? Well, it really began when I was um, 20 and 21, because in America, of course, we can't drink until we're 21. And um, it's not that you can't get it, but it's just more difficult. And I found it easier to stay away from it, you know, at that point. 
But when I was 20 and 21 and I started drinking regularly on weekends, it seemed real manageable for a long time until I began to notice that if I just had a little bit instead of a binge, if I had just the right amount, I felt better about this thing inside of me that I still didn't know what it was. It didn't Mm. seem like depression, although that's what they were treating me for, you know? I didn't know what it was. Alcohol just kind of helped me function a little better around the people whose social norms I just didn't get. (laughs) So it was hard. And and when, when it makes you feel normal, it's very seductive. It's very easy to just get into that habit because you're not falling down all the time. You're just doing it little and often, but you know, it still has the same toxic effect on me. And it's so easily available, isn't it? And normalized, especially in the British culture. I don't know about in the USA, but um, it's so normalized to drink here that it's like part of the course. I would say that before I came to Britain, I met my husband when I came to Britain when I was 23. And that's when my drinking really stepped up because he liked to drink, but he didn't drink alcoholically, but he liked to drink. He's a British guy. He was a young man. They drank. I drank right along with him, but the difference was I needed it, you know, mm-hmm. and it was starting to show in America when he said, I want to go back to Wales. A large part of my decision to come with him was based on the fact that I knew my drinking wouldn't stand out over here in the yeah. same way, because I was never a badly behaved drunk. I always, I call myself the 7.5 alky because really on a scale of one to 10, where 10 is like oblivion, I want to be 7.5. I don't want to be anything else, Yeah, you know? But it's, it's just that once you have that in you, it's hard to stop. And uh, like with the reading, I guess it was a form of escaping the, the yeah. head chaos. Oh, very much, very much so. I mean, you know, I didn't, I was trying so hard to walk a straight and narrow path. I married my husband. He had a good path forward. He was a good man. He wanted a family. We had a family. You know, I did all of these things because I felt that if I dedicated myself to something better and bigger than myself, that I would find happiness. And I just didn't because I was living this, this unbelievable lie, which was that I just was not like the other people and pretending to be was killing me. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't even realize that until I hit my thirties. And then I didn't even accept the reasons behind that until my forties. Yeah. It's a long journey. Yeah, it sounds very tough and something we will definitely talk about in a second. But um, your next song is Something is Squeezing My Skull by Morrissey. Tell me about this song. Something is squeezing my skull, you know, (laughs) and I've been on just about, he recites the litany of drugs at the end. I've been on most of them. (laughs) (laughs) You're just like, oh, I can't do it anymore. Something is squeezing my skull Something I can barely describe 
You're listening to Recovery Now Radio. Let's recover together. And that was Something is Squeezing My Skull by Morrissey. And one of the lyrics in that song was no true, no true friends in modern life. How does that make you feel, Lisa? Because it certainly touched me. I have a history of really struggling with friendships. It's only really in the last four or five years that I've been able to kind of, well, maybe 10 years, I've been able to sustain some friendships, not all of them, but some. It's part of the ADHD thing, which I didn't understand at the time. But for me, when I do find a friend who really understands me, and most importantly, I feel safe with them, emotionally safe with them, it's a very rare thing. And I think that I've grown a little bit past that now, (laughs) but, you know, certainly at that time it resonated. Could you tell us a little bit about the consequences of your alcoholism? You know, one of the first things I think of is my, my daughter. My daughter was three when I stopped drinking, you know, and I struggled, I struggled throughout both pregnancies to not drink mostly successfully, you know, the the vast majority of the time successfully, but it was always the white knuckle, but The one thing that happened with my daughter is that because I would drink around six o'clock at night until about eight o'clock at night, I was drunk during her bedtime and I wouldn't, I would forget to brush her teeth and her baby teeth had cavities in them. When I became sober and I understood, this seems like such a small consequence, but it was heartbreaking to me. You know, there were so many consequences I dodged. There were so many things that I was fortunate with. There were so many yets that have never happened to me. But I could look at my daughter's mouth and literally see holes in her teeth that were that. And that was my fault because she was dependent on me to do that. And I failed her. So many people have consequences that they've paid that have been truly horrific, you know, but my story is not one like that because I was just always trying to be good so that you would like Mm. me because if I wasn't good all the time, no one would like me because I was unlikable. Mm. You know, and that took a very long time to understand and shift. That's um, really poignant and uh, it's just making me choke up a little bit, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, everybody is likable, Lisa. Everybody is worthy. And uh, I just want you to believe that about yourself. I think I now am at the point where I understand that I am worthy of the same respect that I, and dignity that I would give a stranger on the street, right? Because I'm a really polite person and I'm exactly. a really kind person and a really nice person. So I'll treat you great. So if I treat myself like that, I should be okay. Yeah, and why shouldn't you treat yourself the way you yeah. treat others? Exactly. Well, your next song is Gravity by John Mayer. I don't know if I know this song until I hear it. Can you tell me a little bit about it? I'm not 100% certain, but I do believe that um, John Mayer has alcohol problems. He's spoken of it publicly. And I think this is his song um, expressing his hopes of recovery and they certainly echo mine and I love the last line keep me where the light is It's one and more 
It's gonna send me to my knees listening to recovery now radio let's recover together and that was gravity by john mayer what a beautiful song i really enjoyed that i get the feeling that it's been an uphill battle for you to be you would i be right in saying that yes and the biggest person to be the biggest person i had to battle to be myself was myself you know i was so i was so self-controlled I can remember when I was like 24, I worked at this car dealership and the management went away and did this test and they came back and they were like, oh, wow, everybody has to do it. It'll tell you so much about yourself, you know, and you do the test and then you score yourself and you open the book and I'm paging through and I get to the end and it said, we can't classify you because you've shown no bias one way or another enough for us to classify your personality type. And everybody laughed at me because they thought that was hilarious, but I had been depending on this information to give me a freaking clue about what to do mm. you know, with my life. And it was horrifying to me that I was unclassifiable, but of course it wasn't until I came to recovery that I began to understand that for someone who believes you're unlikable, I can't have opinions. What if they're different than yours? You won't like me. You know, and I had that it was so deeply ingrained in me that I actually took a test designed to reveal something about myself and and failed it. Yeah, because <laughs> I just was that out of touch. It was hard. I had to the suicidal ideation that the next song speaks of, you know, that really was freedom from that was also gained through acceptance of the amount of anger that I had towards myself. You know, it certainly sounds like um, a very uh, a tough time trying to figure out who you were. It, it was, and it is, it still is. I mean, I was sitting in a meeting and I realized that I wasn't suicidal, but I was homicidal. The only difference was the person I wanted to kill was myself, but it was not a suicidal impulse. It was homicidal. I was angry. I was angry and full of hate. And when I understood that and I began to find some compassion for myself, that began to shift. But yeah. a lot of my songs and my song choices are painful ones because that's that's what speaks to me. I need to know that I'm not alone in it. And you spoke about recovery just now. Let's talk about your first period of recovery. How did you find recovery? I had always kind of known about AA being an American. Um, it was always in the background. And obviously my family, my father in particular, discussed the family history of alcoholism with me. So I knew it was there. And when I couldn't stop, for a long time, I thought that I wasn't really qualified because I wasn't obsessed with drinking. I was obsessed with stopping drinking, but I didn't understand that was still just being obsessed with drinking. <laughs> but when I finally just one day knew that I had to go to an AA meeting and I heard so many things I identified with there, I still needed another couple of months. And then I came back to my second one and things really began to 
grow and change from there. And it was a rebirth for me in just in so many ways. I think really it was the, the true beginning of my development as a person into an wow, adult. Quite profound. I really do. I think that I was very immature and it still am for my age in many ways, you know, but I don't think things really started to come together until I was 32 and got that sobriety. Yeah, I think they say that we stop emotionally growing when we start drinking. We would have been still around our teenage years and not emotionally yeah. growing in life Yeah, until we put the drink down. I, I think probably I was about 12, you know, at that time. And what was frightening is I had children, you know, and people looked at me as an adult and I just wasn't, you know, I don't think I really reached adulthood until my forties. I was able to, to make that claim of being able to be on my own two feet. It was a difficult one for me. You're not alone, darling. Um, I'm 45 and I only came into recovery a year ago. So I'm only just growing up myself. <laughs> with your recovery, yeah, winners we are, winners. With your recovery then, how did that progress? What changed? What did you find out about yourself? I began to understand that with alcohol, I wasn't in control of the decisions that I made. Whereas I felt almost like I was morally a bad person for doing things like drinking and driving, doing things, you know, like just not being as present as I should be for my children. Those things haunted me, but I couldn't, I couldn't stop. You know, I didn't understand at that point that I did, I just didn't understand how to stop. You know, I needed to go to AA to learn that. But as things progressed, then what I learned about myself was that I had no freaking idea what I was or who I was. You could have asked me where I wanted to eat. And I just would have looked at you and said, I don't know. I really mm. don't know. It didn't feel safe for me to have opinions and choices like that at that time in my life. I didn't feel like I had earned that place in the world. That took a long time. But I did in early recovery meet my the man who went on to become my, my partner that I split up with in 2013. And that kind of sparked off my relapse. But it wasn't a negative story between us. Uh, it was my reaction to the breakup that led to the relapse, not the relationship itself. You know, that was, um, it was a difficult time. It was it's always, you know, it's always been challenging. That's one thing I will say. Well, we'll talk about um, your relapse and subsequent recovery hmm. after this next song, which is Woke Up This Morning by Alabama 3. Tell me about this one. Oh, I love this song. This one just speaks to that part of me that wakes up some mornings and yeah, I think about getting a gun, you know, and it's a horrible thing to say, but if you acknowledge it, you can overcome it. Exactly. Walking down Cold Harbor Lane, head hung low, three or four in the morning. The sun's coming up and the birds are out singing. I let myself into my pad, wind my way up that spiral staircase and stretch out nice on the chest of fear. Pick the camper because the wreck was already on the CD player and I just pushed that remote button to sublimity. Listen to the sweet sculptural rhythms of Charles Mingus. And G.R. Monroe's and Jackie McLean duet on no saxophones and the sound makes its way out the window mingling with the traffic noises outside, you know. All of a sudden I'm overcome by a feeling of brief mortality because I'm getting on in the world coming up on 41 years 41 stony gray steps towards the grave you know the box awaits its grizzly load now I'm gonna be food for worms and just like Charles Mingus wrote that beautiful piece of music epitaph for Eric Dolphy I say so long Eric so long John Coltrane and Charles Mingus so long, Duke Ellington and Lester Young. So long, Billy Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald. So long, Jimmy Reed. So long, Muddy Waters. And so long, Howlin' Wolf. Good. 
listening to recovery now radio let's recover together and that was woke up this morning by alabama three the producer myself and you lisa we're all jamming along there if any if they could see us eh? <laughs> moving on to uh moving on to your second recovery now if that's okay mm, with you yeah. or, or or your relapse more importantly because relapse mm-hmm. is a a huge subject in uh recovery in the recovery world can you tell us what happened to you during your relapse I had really built my world around this relationship because I do form, I'm capable of forming very intense singular relationships. And this person began to kind of fall out with AA. And although I didn't agree with them, I did change my behavior in that I did start going to fewer and fewer meetings. And with the result that when we did split, when he laughed, although let me be accurate when I showed him the door, because I did, <laughs> and he left through it. I was devastated. I, I thought I had met and been with the, the man that I was going to die with, you know? It was, mm. it was horrible for me. And I ran from that. I ran just as fast and as far as I could away from that pain. That was the beginning of, of really four years of just talk about denial. It was just, I just couldn't cope with it. I didn't, there were so many factors in place. So part of it was denial. Part of it was just that if I let go of the pain, or if I felt the pain and grieved it and let go, I would lose him. There was a finality to that, that I didn't like. I was very fortunate. It only took four years to figure that out. You say that but four years is quite a long time, isn't it? To be, have a head full of AA, but yeah. still be drinking. It was, and it was difficult. I mean, one of the things that had happened was that my drinking had changed a bit. So in that respect, it was easier to lie to myself that it was normal because the quantity was much easier to control it. It really wasn't even a control issue. The problem was that I had to have that 
It didn't matter if I had to steal to have that. It didn't matter if I had to be dishonest to have that. And it had the same effect on my mental health, which was to drive me to a place where suicide, again, felt like the only option, the only way out, mm. you know, and, and this time around, because I had had so much AA, you know, I couldn't even get really emotional about it. It was more cold and calculating. It really was like, well, if I have to live the rest of my life like this because I can't get back to sobriety. I just don't want to. And that mm. was very frightening. That was December 2017, you know, when I thought, all right, you know, I'll give you a year to really pursue recovery, not just from alcohol. I think spiritual recovery as well, just from everything that had happened to me and all the things that I had tried so hard to make up for. I just needed to accept them and feel them. And I yeah. went through an intense period of mourning and grief in 2018, where I, I really lanced that boil. Oh, so yeah. It's a really painful process, isn't it? Yeah. But I'll tell you what, it pays dividends. I've, I've seen improvement in areas of my life I never thought I'd see just through acceptance and trying. So around that subject, then your second recovery, mm-hmm. which, which is the recovery you're in now since yes. 2018, was it, did you say? 17. 17. Yeah. How has that been for you? Well, do you know, it's, it's, it's actually really gone from strength to strength. There were so many things that I had to accept. 2018 was a very difficult, very difficult year for me, but I put the work in, I challenged Mm. myself and I said, you know, if you want to leave this world so bad, great. You put a year's worth of work in. If you're still here in a year, I'll give you permission to go. And you see that wouldn't work for most people, but I'm like a drill instructor. I cut myself no breaks. So I was like, (laughs) you're going to recover woman. And I I did not only through AA, but also I attended emotional regulation skills class, which I recommend highly for anyone who suffers with emotional dysregulation. It helps you to learn. And so much of what I learned there echoed what I learned in AA. They would go come out with this big term and I would say, should is Mm, you know, <laughs> they would go, what? I'm like, well, that's what we call it in AA, you know, yeah. change your, manage your expectations. That's what they call it. Shit is, you know, that's what I call it. I've, I too have had emotional regulation classes. So uh, mm. I think it was a dialectic behavioral therapy that I had. Yes, that's what I did too. I found, yeah. you know, again, it, I took the same attitude to it as I took to AA, which, which is what I learned in AA, which is if it speaks to you, take it. And if it, if it's not applicable to you, leave it on the floor. Don't pick it up and worry about it. Don't use it as a reason to exclude yourself. Just leave it there. Cause not everything that I learned in those classes was applicable to me, but what was applicable changed my life. Yeah. Mine too. Yeah. Well, your next song is the heart of life by John Mayer. And um, what do you like about this song? This song is so beautiful. It's just, this is to me like when I finally came to a point in life where I could accept that people did love me and that I was worthy of that, my family in particular, my mother, my father, my sister, my children. This song reminds me that they're there around me all the time. It's just a lovely song. Love ties the whole 
to recovery now radio let's recover together and that was the heart of life by john mayer so lisa we've come a long way in this interview and it's been a pleasure and a privilege to hear your story what i want to know now is what life is like for you now what are your plans and aspirations oh you know life is um life is certainly different and it, you know, in, in a, they say, you know, you'll have life beyond your wildest dreams. And, you know, people think that that's like hyperbole, but, you know, for me, just to have the degree of stability I have in my life is beyond my wildest dreams. I didn't think I could achieve it. So life is very sweet. I'm able to do a little bit more than what I used to be able to do. Um, in the sense that I've gone for a job with added responsibilities at work and I seem to be doing well with that. Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't think that was ever going to happen. Um, relationships. I have a relationship with a man that is normal and very yeah. nice and not obsessional. And I didn't love bomb him and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not people pleasing him. It's just normal. You know, my children have grown to be the most amazing adults and there's it's hard for me to accept any role in that, but I have to accept, I have to accept the role sobriety played in that. Mm. And even the four years I relapsed were more stable because I had that AA knowledge than they mm -hmm. would have been, believe me, you know, um, it's, it's sweet, you know, and I'm at a point where I'm looking forward to life in a way that I haven't probably ever. That's amazing. Yeah. I want to be here. That's a really wonderful statement. And I'm not so angry with myself. I don't want to murder myself anymore. I just want to Thank enjoy. Thank God for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. <laughs> what would you, um, given all the, the trouble that you've gone through in finding yourself, what would the sober you say to the younger you now, if you could? Be bold. Be bold. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid or be afraid, but be bold anyway, because, you know, you can't help but be afraid, you know? Yeah. But I'm reminded of Ned Stark in Game of Thrones. He, and he said, uh, but this man's afraid. He said, well, that's the only time a man can be brave, son, you know, is when he's afraid. So I would say be brave, you know, don't yeah. and just don't be afraid to go through the pain because you don't get out of it. You can't run from it. You might as well do it now. That's how I feel. Do it now. Why not? You're only going to have to do it later. Yeah. The only, the only way through hell is through. That's right. When you find yourself in hell, keep walking. Yeah. And I do, I persist. And I think that's the main thing as well is recognizing that this, this lifetime journey, you know, it, it, as long as you persist and you try to do the next right thing, you won't go too far wrong. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I often think that, um, I call them the normals out there, yeah, <laughs> the people yeah. who are not in recovery, that um, I, I, d I don't know if their life is as, as fulfilling as ours is with this program we have, you know? I, I often think that people in AA, there's a lot of people in AA who have emotional regulation issues, right? But I think that speaks more to the depth of the emotion that they feel. Why wouldn't it be difficult to control a flood? Why wouldn't it be? So we need to be less hard on ourselves for that. But I think the flip side of that is we do take enormous pleasure out of what we manage to achieve through working the program mm. because we've been to hell. So we're very grateful for where we are. Thank you very much. I will take it kind yeah. of mentality, you know, and mostly I just try to ground myself in reality so that I'm neither the best thing in the world nor the worst, just absolutely myself. Yeah. <laughs> Before I move on to your final song, I'd like to thank you very, very much for giving us this time today. And I love what I do. It is so unreal to, 
to get to be a part of someone's journey and hear the pain and struggle they've gone through. So I want to thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you. And I also want to thank our listeners and the Living Room and Adveriad. And I want to encourage people to keep on listening, subscribe to Mixcloud, share these podcasts because you never know who it's going to help out there. And we are we really are reaching people across the world doing this. And your final song, Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles. Tell me a little bit about this one before we play it. Um, this song is just, it kind of reflects how I feel about life at this moment. I feel like I, and my relationships with people, they're very bright at the moment. And it's it's a lovely thing. Here comes the sun, I say it's all right.